Let's open our Bibles together this morning to the book of Nehemiah. Book of Nehemiah in the Old Testament. And before I get started in our study, we're going through our series uh, this morning, continuing uh, an overview of all books of the Bible. And we've made it through, I think, 15 so far. But before I get started with that, I want to say it is this is a beautiful crowd, first of all. It's amazing seeing everybody here this morning. And uh, the, the church is growing. And this morning, we, I have some special visitors, some special guests here. I have my son with us for the first time in Asheville and my brand new daughter, uh, Austin and Kate. And it's so good to have you guys here with us this morning. I actually knew the secret and the surprise. And uh, we are celebrating Mother's Day early this week, so you all just have to excuse us. Uh, they could come in next week, but they said they could be here this week for uh, Mother's Day. So we're doing it a week early. Good to see you guys. And it's awesome to have everyone else here. Robert and Amanda, we were, we were, we were sweating it. I mean, we were waiting on you guys. <laughs> Penny, I'm glad you got into church this morning. It's, it's good to see you guys. This morning, it's just not right when someone's missing. Miss Joyce is out this morning. Uh, she's busy with family, I believe she said. I would say the city, but I would get it wrong. She told me, but I forgot. But she will be back with us again, and she's coming back this afternoon. But it's good to see everybody here this morning. We always miss those that aren't here, but God always brings the right people here that need to hear His word. And uh, I'm excited about diving into the book of Nehemiah this morning. Uh, as I told you last week, Nehemiah is the second half of the book of Ezra. Uh, when the Bible was translated into Greek, Ezra and Nehemiah were split into two books. And I just want to remind you that when the Bible was originally written, there were no chapter and verse references in the Bible. That is something that has been added and it was added, there's not some conspiracy behind it. I've heard people say all kinds of crazy things. It was added because it is helpful for us trying to find passages of Scripture. Imagine if you had to find, for God so loved the world, and someone just said, open your Bible and find that verse. It would be a whole lot harder than going to the book of John, chapter 3, verse 16. So it, it helps us out, especially... When we're studying through God's Word, and any of you read, uh, do a reading plan, it, it helps you keep up and track your progress. It's amazing how much of God's Word you can read in a week, a month, a year, just reading a few verses, a few chapters a day. And I believe it, it changes us from the inside out. And last week we saw how God arranged for His people who had been sent into captivity. They were punished. And disciplined by God by being sent into seven years of captivity. And God had arranged, divinely, sovereignly arranged for his people to go back to their land. This was a miracle. No one would have thought this was happening. This would ever happen. As a matter of fact, when the people went into exile, they were completely defeated. The northern tribes and the southern tribes were defeated. Both were displaced, sent into exile, into captivity. Nobody would have thought that. They would never be a nation. The enemies of God were celebrating because it looked like God's people and God himself had been defeated. But God orchestrated this return to the land. He actually changed the hearts of multiple kings to accomplish his will. And God provided Ezra with the money, the authority, the protection, 
and the leaders to fulfill the prophecy that the temple would be rebuilt and would be standing at the time of the Messiah. So we look a lot of times at a, a, an obscure Old Testament book like Ezra, and it, we don't see the connection with the rest of Scripture, but what happened in Ezra, the laying of the foundation of the temple, the rebuilding of the temple, the sacrificial system, everything being reestablished in Israel had to happen before the Messiah came. And so we see God fulfilling His will, keeping His promises. And after Ezra returned, rebuilt the temple, reestablished the worship of God, then He led the people in revival of obedience to God. We're picking up this week in the middle of this one book that has been turned into two. In the book of Nehemiah, we find a man named Nehemiah who was still living in exile. He was in the kingdom of Persia and he was the king's cupbearer. God had lifted him up to this exalted position. We find out that he is a very godly man living in a pagan culture. And I want us to walk through the story of Nehemiah together. I'm not going to read a lot of individual verses, but as you flip through the chapters, I want to show you what the outline is in this book, and I want you to understand the storyline that we see in this book. So the first section of Nehemiah is chapter 1 through chapter 7, and this is the section where we see Nehemiah is rebuilding the wall. Not only had the temple been torn down, but the gates and the walls had been torn down around Jerusalem, which left them open to attack. It made their families live in danger every single day. And the enemies of God were planning and plotting as we're going to see in this book. And as we open up in chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, we see that Nehemiah is in this foreign kingdom and he asks some people that come back from Jerusalem. The first wave had gone to Jerusalem and some returned to Persia. And Nehemiah, in his comfortable job, in the palace, serving the king, separated from danger, separated from problems, he is concerned with his people, and he asks about their welfare. In a foreign land, his identity is still connected with his God. His identity is still wrapped up in who he is as a child, a son of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and his connection to his God and to his people inspires us and reminds us that we live in a foreign land. This world is not our home. And we are here for a reason, here for a purpose, but we've been saved. We belong to God's kingdom. And we're reminded that while we live in this foreign land, this isn't our identity. Our identity is connected to God, to God's people. People on the outside of these walls would not be very impressed with what's happening here this morning. They wouldn't be impressed with our numbers. They wouldn't be impressed with our financial situation. They wouldn't be impressed probably with our singing, with my preaching. There's a lot of things they would not be impressed with. But what they don't know is what we're doing in this room together as the children of God goes to the very core of who we are. It's our identity. We worship God together. This is who we are. We can't stop doing this. The people that should be here this morning that have stepped back and taken a pause because of COVID or whatever else, they are missing out on one of the greatest gifts that God has given us. Nehemiah was longing to be with his people. I've heard stories of missionaries that were separated. Of, of uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer who was uh, put into a Nazi camp. 
and separated from his family, from his church, from his friends. And he wrote extensively, you should read his books. He wrote extensively about how he missed gathering on Sunday mornings and worshiping with the people of God and with his family, singing songs together. There's something supernatural that happens when we sing together, when we open God's word together, when we hug necks, when we shake hands, when we tell one another how much we missed each other. This is a part of worship that Nehemiah was missing out on that. He was separated in a foreign land, yet his identity didn't change. And the report that he got about his people in the city of Jerusalem was not good. Scripture says great trouble and shame was there and the wall was broken down and its gates were destroyed by fire. This was an intentional attack from the enemy, from Satan and from the enemy nations that surrounded Israel. And they celebrated the fact that God's people had been defeated. But God had a plan that enemies of God knew nothing about. We see how deeply Nehemiah's identity is connected to his people when he gets this report in verse 4 through verse 11, chapter 1. The Bible says he wept and he mourned for days. He could not get over the fact that the situation, imagine they celebrated because they got to go back. So many people were set free, liberated, sent back, the temple's being rebuilt. All these good things are happening. But then there's this, this pause. And it seems like from his perspective, good things have happened. He gets this report and he's just devastated. The things we care about reveals what we love. Things that make us joyful, the things that make us sad, the things that make us angry, the things that motivate us to get out of bed in the morning, they reveal where our heart's at. Where your treasure is, that's where your heart's going to be also. And it says that Nehemiah continued in prayer and fasting for days. I want to read his prayer to you if you're in chapter 1, verse 5. Listen to Nehemiah's prayer. I want you to listen to how he prays to God. A lot of times we just spit words out. We don't think about what we're saying. Listen to his prayer. He says, Oh Lord God of heaven and God of a great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayers of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel. We have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have not have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and we have not kept the commandments, the statutes and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost part of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make a name, to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O oh Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of 
of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. And the man he was talking about was the king of Persia. As we look at his prayer, I want you to notice that he starts out with praise. When we pray to God, we don't just close our eyes and begin telling God all the things that we need. All the things that we want him to do for us. We should start by praising him, glorifying him, declaring who he is. He is awesome. He is great. He keeps covenant. He has steadfast love and keeps his commandments. And he's the God who hears us. He's the God who has the power to act. Nehemiah is declaring all these things to God before he asks for anything. This is how we're to pray. We see praise. We see worship. We see he has an attitude of humility. We see that he is totally dependent upon God. We see that he confesses his sins. When we pray, we should confess our sins before God. We see him quoting scripture back to God. He's praying scripture back to God. And I have all of these on the screen for you if anyone wants to take notes. But we're stuck on the title screen. But I want you to write these down. If anybody struggles with prayer, if anybody struggles with, with your own prayer life, I don't think anybody in this room is satisfied with your prayer life. I enjoy prayer, but I'm not satisfied with where I'm at in my prayer life. We can all grow. So move forward on the slide to praise. Confession of sin. I believe I put these in the slides. If I didn't, then I'll have to apologize to me after the service. I don't think I put them in there. Okay, you're good. I thought it was on the next slide, but that's okay. You can still write these down. He starts the prayer with praise, worship, humility, dependence, confession of sins, quoting scripture, repentance. And then he gives a specific request. He gives a very specific request to God. He prays for success and mercy before the king. It's not wrong to bring your needs and your cares and your concerns and your specific requests to God. Yes, we should praise him. Yes, we should confess our sins. We should worship him. We should humble ourselves. We should quote his scriptures back to him. Reminding ourselves and praying before God about his promises. But he wants his children to ask. He says, asking you shall receive. Seek and you will find not, and it will be open to you. And then moving on through into chapter 2, we see that Nehemiah is focused on this burden to the extent that he goes before the king and the king says, I've never seen you with a sad face. What's going on? He says, I've never seen you when you're sad. He didn't go before the king with a sad countenance. He goes before the king and he's so focused on what matters in his life. He can't hide this burden that God has given him. And the king asks him why he's so sad. The Bible tells us he prays again. And then he asks God for success again. And then he takes his own life into his hand and makes this bold request. Ask the king to be permitted to return to the land 
with money, with a guarded escort, with all the authority that he needs. And the king grants this re request. God answers his prayer. And Nehemiah gives God the credit. I wonder how many times we pray and ask God for things. And then God answers those prayers. Prayers that we never give Him the credit. We never praise Him publicly for those things. I've done that. We forget many times. But we should pray. We should ask God for specific things. But we should also glorify His name. Nehemiah never fails to do this in this book. So we move on down in chapter 2, verses 9 through 20. We see that when his prayer is granted, the enemies of God's people were displeased because someone was seeking the welfare of God's people. This world is not happy when we serve God, when we serve people, when we love God, when we love one another. We're not going to get a fan club when we are servants of Jesus. But we shouldn't be looking for that. We should be serving Him for His pleasure. We should be serving Him for His joy, for the joy that we get for doing that because we live our lives before Him. But this doesn't stop Nehemiah. He's a very wise man. He doesn't tell the people of Israel why he's returning. He doesn't tell his enemies why he's returning. When everybody else is asleep at night, he gets up and he goes through the city and he inspects the gates, inspects the walls, comes up with a plan. Then he shares his vision at the right time with his people. If you study this book and see how Nehemiah acts, he, he is filled with the wisdom of the Holy Spirit. He's filled with the wisdom of God, and that's how he accomplishes all that he does. He shares his vision with the people. Then he glorifies God before the people. And the people, the response was let us rise up and build. I would love to see the church of God in 2023 respond to the preaching of the word of God on a Sunday morning by saying, let us rise up and build. God is building his church and he's called us to be involved in that. Is that the cry of our heart? Let us rise up and build. I'm with you, Nehemiah. I'm with you, God. Whatever you want me to do, I'm ready to get involved in the work. But as the people of God were saying, let us rise up and build, the enemies of God were mocking them, making fun of them. I think I'd rather be punched in the face than be made fun of. And someone laugh at me or mock me. And I have been punched in the face before, so I know what both of them feels like. But through this whole season, the enemies of God are making fun, belittling, mocking God's people. But again, it doesn't stop the people of God. Nehemiah claims God's blessing, God's approval. He declares that they're serving God and he ignores the enemies. We need to do that in our lives because if you're serving Jesus, the Bible says you will experience persecution. It may not be the same level in America or in North Carolina as it is in China or some other communist country, but we will face persecution. You stand up for Jesus and believe the Bible and ask for North Carolina, people are going to laugh at you. They, they think it's funny. They think it's amusing that we are so old-fashioned that we actually believe these stories, that we actually try to live our lives by what God tells us to do. 
Then moving into chapter 3, and I'm going to move through this quickly. The work starts, and chapter 3 tells us that the people that started working on the walls, the first ones were the high priests and the other priests. The high priest was the first one to roll his sleeves up and start working on that wall. And when the leaders, when the preachers, when the pastors, when the prophets got involved, the other people followed along. I had a pastor that used to say, many hands make slight work. We're called to do this together, church. I can't do this on my own. I didn't come to Asheville, North Carolina to plant a church by myself. My family didn't need to come to plant a church by ourselves. We came to unite the people of God, rally the people of God to rebuild what God wants to do here in Asheville. But there were some nobles, and I, I, in my notes I put it in, in quotes, some nobles who thought they were too good to do the work of God. And the Bible records what they did. Imagine this is the only verse in the Bible about your life. It says, some nobles refused to work. And here, here's exactly how it describes these guys that thought they were too good to get out there and work rebuilding the kingdom of God. It says they would not stoop to serve their Lord. wonder if that defines our lives. Nathan would not stoop to serve his Lord. He thought he was better than that. He had better things to do than to serve the community and to serve his Lord and serve his family. I would hate for that to be a documentary on my life. But there were some people then, and there are people now, they think they're too good. Or maybe there are some people that think they're not fit. If you've been born again, if you've been saved, you're in the family of God. God has a job for you to do. We don't all do the same thing. I don't try to cook. My wife doesn't preach. We do different things. But we use the gifts. Well, she preaches to me. I saw some comments over here. She preaches to me, but not to you guys. She preaches some really good sermons. But we're called to do what God has gifted us to do. And we see this in the people. We also see that they're very organized. And how they divide the work, the different gates, the different sections of the wall. They're incredibly organized and meticulous about what they do. If you're going to work for God, do a good job. Amen. How you serve Jesus, how you do whatever you do for the church and for the community, it reflects on your Lord and Savior. Serve Him with pride. Not a false sense of arrogant pride, but a sense of pride that you're connected to something that's greater than anything else that's happening in Asheville. I believe what we do here matters more than anything else in this world. There's nothing that can compare with the kingdom of God. They're organized, they're meticulous, but they're also dependent upon each other to do their part. No, no one group, no one family, no one person can do this alone. In chapter four, we see the opposition continues. They're mocked, they're made fun of. And the immediate response of Nehemiah and the people was they start praying again. Are you seeing a theme through the book of, of Nehemiah? Anytime he faces something that's too big for him, he prays, he turns to God, he trusts God. And the enemy gets angry, they plot against the work. But again, we see Nehemiah and the people in Israel, the priests, they again, every time something happens, every time they're afraid, 
They turned to God in prayer and they set up a guard. Nehemiah tells them, he says, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your home. If God is for us, church, who can be against us? We've got to remember that word, right? We all experience fear at some point, at some level in our lives. But we see that God frustrates the plans of the enemy. And Nehemiah adjusts his plan. He's willing to make adjustments. Any good leader will make adjustments as they're moving forward. And he separates the people. Half of the people work on the construction and the other half stand guard as soldiers and guard the work. They said they had a sword in one hand and a trowel in the other. And they had the, the ones that were working on the wall, they were ready to fight too because they had their swords strapped to their side. In chapter 5, in the middle of this incredible progress on the wall, Nehemiah was the governor. That's why he was sent back to rebuild this wall. He had the authority of the governor of Jerusalem. And he hears that the people that were in Jerusalem were oppressing the poor. And we see that in the middle of the work, Nehemiah stops the oppression of the poor. He calls the people because he realizes that our spiritual state and our physical activity, our behavior, it's connected. We can't just go through the outward work of serving God while in our hearts other things are happening. And they were disobeying God, oppressing the poor, breaking God's commandment. And Nehemiah corrects it immediately and tells the people to repent and they obey. So he's imaging God and how he protects the people. We're also told that he never accepted payment as the governor. We're also told that 150 people ate at his table every meal at his own expense. Nehemiah said at great expense to himself. He was feeding the other people. That's what leaders do. They step up. They pay the price. In church, we're called to be leaders in our homes, in our communities, and in the church. And at the end of chapter 5, Nehemiah prays again, and he asks God to remember. Multiple times in this book, Nehemiah prays this prayer. God, remember the good things I'm doing for your people. That reminds me that we don't have to look for other people's approval. We don't have to try to fight for respect on this earth. I, I heard a preacher a long time ago that, that helped me. I wrote it down in my Bible. I put a note in my phone because this was something I was struggling with in my life. He said, stop fighting for respect and be respectable. Respect will come if you live your life in a respectable way. I needed to hear that because I want respect. I want it from people. So many times in our lives, we don't live a respectable life. Nehemiah lived a respectable life, and he prayed to God, remember the things that I'm doing. Walking in integrity before you, protecting the poor, rebuilding your wall, pouring my life into your ministry. God, remember what I'm doing. I wonder if we serve God in that way, with the confidence to pray and say, God, remember what I'm doing. Not in a proud way. Nehemiah's not proud. He's serving God. That's the focus of his life. As we continue on, we see in chapter 6, there's a plot against Nehemiah. And they try to get him to come down over and over and over again. Four times Nehemiah sends this response to them. 
He says, I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? Many things in our life, tries, the enemy uses many things in our lives to try to distract us from the work of the ministry and the things that really matter. I'm the world's worst at giving in to distractions. My family can tell you this. Got ADD, I'm everywhere, running around, doing whatever. We've got to focus on the things that, that really matter in our lives. We cannot come down from the work to waste our time on other things. That's not what God called us to do. Again, the opposition doesn't stop. Testing one, two, there we go. Again, the opposition doesn't stop. It continues on. Even false prophets are hired against Nehemiah, but guess what Nehemiah does? He prays. He goes to the Lord in prayer. Time after time after time. And in chapter 6, we're told that the wall was finished. In 52 days. This is a miracle. It's miraculous what happened. The wall was finished in 52 days. They made fun of them and they said the wall is going to be so pitiful that a fox could run into it and knock it down. Yet they built the wall. It was a solid wall. It's a firm wall. As a matter of fact, the wall is still standing today. Parts of the wall that Nehemiah rebuilt. And when I was in Israel, I want to show you a picture. This is what I actually put in the slideshow. And I want to show you this first picture. This is when I was in Israel. And this is part of Nehemiah's wall. This is at the city of David. This is where David's palace would have been in the lower part of that wall. There's another wall that's off to the side. But all those lower parts of the, the rock that you see there, that is the wall that we just studied about. We just read about. Nehemiah and the people in Israel built this with their hands. And it stands today as a monument to the miracle that God did. The entire city, all the walls, all the gates were rebuilt in 52 days. I have no idea how that happened other than to give God the glory and give God the credit. And, and just another thing about this spot where we're standing, this is where the palace of King David would have been. If you turn around and look behind this picture, this next picture looks out over the valley. And this is the Kidron Valley where you can see from the city of David, from the walls of Nehemiah, as they looked out, as they were working on the walls, they would have seen this valley. It probably would not have been that full. But in the time of David, this is actually the place, bringing up another Bible story, this is the place where David would have walked out in the palace and looked over the city. And he would have seen Bathsheba on one of those rooftops. This is the exact place where he would have been at. So it just it brings the Bible to life, being able to see it. And this next picture that I want you to see, I've actually, and I'm not the only one in this room, I've actually touched the wall of Nehemiah. Shameless plug, I had to get my picture in there. Sorry if you didn't have one. <laughs> but I actually got to touch the wall that we just read about. This reminds us, this isn't fairy tales. This is true. This is God's word. 
So that's the first section. They return. They rebuild the wall. Chapters 1 through 7. And then the second section, please get that picture off of there. Please Second section is remembering the law. The first section, we see that they rebuild the wall. I should have just left that up there the whole time. Just makes me a little bit uncomfortable. I said there would never be a picture of me hanging on the wall in here. The screen doesn't count, but I'm going to try to limit that as well. So. <laughs> remembering the law. So not only do they rebuild the wall, once the, the wall is rebuilt, they're successful. Nehemiah did what God called him to do. He didn't stop. He didn't go to bed. He didn't retire. He didn't go on vacation. He didn't go back to the palace yet. He continues on. And in chapters 8 through chapter 13, this is where they rediscover the law of God. And Ezra reads the law from morning till midday. The people stand at attention. They listen. They agree with God. And the people weep. They humble themselves. They repent of their sin. They focus on God. And I love chapter 8, verse uh, chapter eight, verse 13. It says, On the second day, the heads of the father's houses, of all the people, with the priests and the Levites, came together to Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the law. Yes. Not only did they listen to the law, but they came back and studied the words of the law. They obeyed what they read. And in studying and reading the words of the law, they realized it was the time for the Feast of Booths that they were commanded to keep. They weren't keeping that because they had been in captivity. And they decided to go ahead, obey God's word. And there was great rejoicing as they observed the celebration of this festival that God called them to observe. Just an amazing story. They confess their sins. They praise God in chapter 9. The covenant is reestablished. Sacrifices are made. In chapter 10, the covenant is sealed. In chapter 11, all the leaders move to Jerusalem, obeying what God's people were supposed to do. And in chapter 12, we see the dedication of the wall. Imagine where we just saw that picture. There are people, bands, choirs, instruments, priests, parades, People lining the streets, singing, praising God, celebrating, rejoicing. The Bible says in verse 43 of chapter 12, And they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced, for God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and children also rejoiced, and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. God kept his promise. The people celebrated that. In the final chapter, chapter 13, Nehemiah returns to Persia because he had told the king he was going for a certain amount of time. He actually keeps his word. He's a man of integrity. He returns to Persia. He honors his word with the king. But then when he gets sent back to Jerusalem, he finds some priests disobeying God, turning back on the law of God. And what do you think Nehemiah does when he finds out the people are disobeying God? He prays. He seeks God's wisdom. And he corrects the things that he sees. They weren't observing the Sabbaths. He corrects that. Then he prays again. Then he corrects the disobedient people who had begun marrying idol worshipers. And I want you to see how he corrects the people. I don't know what you have in your mind when I say Nehemiah. You, you may think of this rough guy with, you know, laying bricks, laying rocks, building this wall. I don't know if you pick 
picture a big man, a small man. But this is who Nehemiah is. This is what he was like. Verse 25 in chapter 13. Nehemiah says, and I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. Would you like to have a preacher like that? And I made them take an oath in the name of God. Later on, we see that the high priest's grandson is disobeying God. And Nehemiah doesn't care whose grandson he is. He doesn't care about politics. The Bible says he set up after the grandson of the high priest. And the grandson was smart enough to run from this guy. He didn't want his hair getting pulled out. He didn't want to get cursed. He didn't want to get punched. So he runs from Nehemiah. And Nehemiah is the one that wrote this book. And in his own words, he says he chased away the grandson of the high priest for his sin. Then he prays again. Just page after page after page. Nehemiah turns to God for wisdom. He prays. He seeks the Lord. In verse 30. He says, thus I cleanse them from every foreign thing, and I establish the duties of the priests and Levites, each to his work. And I provided for the wood offering at appointed times and for the first fruits. And he prays again, remember me, O God, for my good. Nehemiah's final words in Scripture and in this book are a prayer. So what are the things that we see in this book? There, there are many that we could list out, but I just listed out a few. Number one, we see that prayer is a thing. Nothing else happens until we pray. Amen. Nothing else happens until we pray. We can't do it on our own. We also see the theme of leadership. God established the church, and He established leadership in the church. He established the home. He established leadership in the home. Children are commanded to obey their parents. Husbands are commanded to love their wives. Wives are commanded to res respect their husbands. There is an order. There is a structure to how God created this world. And leadership is a major thing, not just of this book, Nehemiah, but also of all of Scripture. If we want to be strong leaders, we need to know God's Word. We also see the theme of unity. They did this together. There wasn't one man or one family or one priest that stood up and said, I did this. Nehemiah didn't even take credit for it. He led the people united and they did amazing things together. The other thing that we see is obedience. Obedience is necessary for the success of God's people. We don't obey God for our salvation. We don't earn our salvation. We're saved by grace through faith. Period. It's not of works that we've done. But we're saved for good works. We're saved to obey and to glorify God with our lives. A lot of times our effectiveness as Christians, as husbands, as fathers, as mothers, as workers, employees, leaders, it's stopped because we don't obey God. In the things that he commands us to do. We saw this last week. We are called to obey the specific commands of God. And the next thing that we see is dedication. Nehemiah was dedicated. He was focused on the work. He persevered in the face of adversity. And I want us to look in closing 
finally, at the cross connection in this book. This is what we've been leading up to. We see the storyline. We see the outline. We see what happens in this book. It's, it's an awesome story. It would make an incredible movie. But this book was written with the primary purpose of pointing forward to Jesus, the one who was coming. Just like Nehemiah faced problems in his day, church, we face serious problems in our culture and in our church. And everybody has, it seems like everybody has an opinion about how to solve those problems. If you want to end abortion, make laws. That's the solution. If, if you want to end racism in the church, be more culturally relevant. If you want to fix poverty, you should force people to share what they have. If you want to end the pandemic, you should vote for a certain political candidate. That's, that's going to solve all your problems. That's not what Scripture says. If you want to fix your marriages, read this new seven-step book. Attend this seminar. Pray this magic prayer. But the problem is that we're all fundamentally broken. The problem in society is our heart. We're broken, and until that is fixed, we can take the bait of trying to fix things ourselves and come up with our own human wisdom. But ultimately, the world is still broken. But we are called to remember that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. There is no true change that can happen apart from Him. The only way things can truly change in ourselves or in the world is through Jesus Christ, our perfect Savior, and His perfect redemption. Jesus is the true and better Nehemiah. Nehemiah points us to a true and a better restorer, rebuilder of the walls. Jesus restores what is in us, what is broken. And he's restoring the world that has been broken by sin. The image of God was marred beyond recognition in human beings when we fell into sin. We still bear God's image. Every single person you see in your life bears God's image. But that image has been marred through sin. We've been separated from God. But Jesus came to restore what truly needed to be restored. We learned a few weeks ago about the new covenant. He gives us a new heart, a heart of flesh, and he puts the desire to serve him in our hearts. When you're born again, God puts the desire in your heart to please him, to love him, to serve him, and to love other people. And to be involved in the work of the kingdom. And when we see Jesus coming, he is the true and the better Nehemiah who is rebuilding the kingdom of God. We've got to see that connection to Jesus. This story is not just about Nehemiah. Just as Nehemiah helped restore a nation, Jesus is restoring the people of God as a nation. Peter tells us this in his letter to the church. When he says you're a holy nation, you're a royal priesthood, a people belonging to God. And Jesus talked about this holy nation, the kingdom of God throughout his ministry. Jesus came to restore the broken things and the people he met along the way. He came to restore our souls, to restore the image of God in us, to save us, to redeem us. But Jesus also came to bring restoration and reconciliation to the world. 
through the restoration of the kingdom of God. Jesus came to rebuild this world into a new Jerusalem. You've got to see that these themes run through scripture from the beginning to the end. That's why we're studying through the whole Bible and doing overviews of the books like this so we can see the connection of every single book on every single page to Jesus. And as Christians, we cannot sit on the sidelines as if we can do nothing. Jesus said, without me, you can do nothing. But we're not without Jesus. We have his Holy Spirit living in our hearts. And he said, I will always be with you. I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. We are in him. He is in us. And this world is broken. And we can never end racism, inequality, sexual immorality, abuse, addiction, broken relationships, disease, or death apart from Jesus. I'm all about social change. I'm all about helping the hurting and restoration in society. The church, if we try to do that apart from Jesus, we just become a cultural club. A community of people united around a cause but separated from the power that can truly bring change in this culture. Jesus restores broken things and he uses us to do it. Amen. Wonder if you see broken down walls in your culture. Ne Nehemiah did something because he saw what was broken. If you don't see what's broken in your culture, or if you don't care what's broken in your culture, or if you're just living for yourself, you're missing out on what God put you on this earth. What is broken in your culture, and how can you fix it? Through the power of Jesus. If we want to pursue good things like ending racism, ending the sex slave trade, crushing addiction and abuse, healing broken relationships, then we must pursue the kingdom of God. We've got to be grounded and rooted in the scripture. We can't bring any lasting true change apart from Jesus Christ. And that brings us to the gospel. Jesus came to share the gospel. The fact that Jesus fixes and restores broken things is why the gospel is so important for all the issues that we face today. The answer to our problems is not more laws or legislation. The answer to our problems lies within the restoration of sinful and broken hearts. When hearts are transformed, society will change. When society changes, laws will change. God always starts with hearts. And heart change cannot happen apart from the gospel. We have to be a people that declare the gospel. We must pursue good things in this world. We're not called to sit by and wait for Jesus to do the work for us. Nehemiah didn't sit by and wait. He asked God to use him. He volunteered. He stepped up, took his life in his own hands, and went to work. That's what we're called to do as the church of Jesus Christ. Paul calls us ambassadors of reconciliation in his letter to the Corinthians. And we have work to do. God's called us to a great work and we cannot come down from this work.
if we want to end broken things in this culture through the power of the gospel, we must pursue the only one who is unbroken. Jesus is the perfect, sinless, unbroken Lamb of God, the only human being who ever perfectly imaged God. He was God in the flesh. He never sinned, yet He died as a sacrifice for my sins, for your sins. And he rose from the grave declaring that He is victorious. And He called us His church. He empowered us, gave us all authority, and told us to be ambassadors of His unbroken kingdom that He's promised to bring on earth as it is in heaven. And church, we get to be a part of that. There's no greater privilege. And I don't mean everybody has to quit their job and be a missionary, quit their job and go into the ministry or be a preacher. Live out the gospel at your job. Live out the gospel in your community. In the circle that God gives you influence in, build the kingdom of God through the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word this morning, Lord. We come to you just asking that you would fill us with your spirit. That you would fill us with boldness. God, we can't do what you've called us to do on our own, but we are not alone. You are with us. And God, we ask that you would empower us to build the kingdom of God as we follow you, as we obey you, and as we walk in your truth.